On today's episode of the London Lyceum, Brandon and I talk with Dr. Sam Renahan about the difficult and confusing, oftentimes, doctrine of divine impassibility. So originally we recorded this episode as a complimentary episode to our discussion on Baptist Covenant Theology and had planned on releasing it after that. After the fact, we thought it probably made more sense to release it before that. So I do want to briefly introduce him since I forgot to do that in the episode. So he is a pastor over in California. He has done a ton of research and writing on Baptist Covenant Theology and the Doctrine of Divine Impassibility along with some others. So he has some books on that which we mentioned. So I think he's a really good resource to talk to on this doctrine uh, that affirms the classical uh, version of divine impassibility, which seems to be somewhat under attack in our current last, I don't know, 50 to 100 years. So I think it's really interesting to talk to him and pose him some questions and some objections to the view and why we should affirm a strong version of divine impassibility. I think you're really going to enjoy it. I think uh, he is really clear. He doesn't mince words. He's helpful. He gives some good illustrations, and he really interacts uh, really well in this. So I think it's a fun episode. I think it's a really informative episode, and it really fits the goal of the podcast to help us to keep thinking. I know we like to have people on both sides of these different doctrinal issues, so this is one is uh, going to be really good, and I think you're going to really enjoy it. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today we are excited to talk with Dr. Sam Renahan again uh, on the topic of divine impassibility. So uh, we, we've been able to talk to him about covenant theology uh, on a previous episode. And one thing I really was interested in asking him was just thinking through divine impassibility. Uh, it seems like this is a doctrine that's kind of confused, and I'm not really sure people understand what it's supposed to be saying. And I know he has a nice short little primer on it, so I thought, why not uh, pick his brain a little bit on on, on this topic uh, to help us to think clearly about what exactly does it mean, what does it entail, uh, what might pastoral implications be for it? Why would someone accept it? So I just want to ask him a couple questions. So I'll, I'll kick it off and just say, for those who don't know what divine impassibility is, do you have a good definition of what that is? Divine impassibility. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> divine impassibility uh, is the, the teaching that God is not and cannot be acted upon by anything, whether outside of himself or within himself. So God is not acted upon, nothing acts upon him, and he cannot be acted upon by anything. And what that's saying is that for, for a variety of reasons, because God is perfect and pure and simple being, there is no, there's no agent that could ever act on God, could ever exert a force on God at all. And if if nothing can exert a force on God, then nothing can change God. Hmm. And so Im, impassable, the, the term comes from Latin and Greek, uh, and we, we can still see it in English, the Latin and Greek words for to suffer or to undergo in, in Latin, pati. And so we have words like patient, Oh, and an agent operates on a patient, 
And a patient is called that because they undergo the action of another. The, the doctor performs surgery on the patient. You are the patient because you are receiving the activity of another, namely a doctor. Uh, we, we see the same uh, root in words like compatible, something that is able to, to feel or able to undergo what another can. Uh, and, and so impassable, it, it was written in older works sometimes as impatible, 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 uh, means that God is incapable of pati, incapable of being acted upon or undergoing the agency of another. And God is not an agent acting upon himself either. God does not fashion and mold himself into something new. So if, if no creaturely agent can make God a patient, and if God is not an agent working on himself as a patient, then God is impassable. There is, he can never be the patient of any agent. He cannot be acted upon. We're getting back to our definition here. He is not acted upon and cannot be acted upon by anything, either outside of himself or within himself. That's interesting. So I guess when the Baptist confessions, when Westminster confession, when other confessions say he doesn't have passions, what they're basically saying is he cannot be acted upon. Yes. uh, Passion comes from the same root and you can define passions in a couple of different ways. And one of them is the way that I was just describing. Mm-hmm. A passion is an undergoing uh, where something happens to you and you are changed in some way. Uh, passions are also discussed discussed as uh, the motions of creatures who are acted upon by agents. Uh, and, and we can go into that. Um, but yes, if God is without body, if he is without parts... So he's incorporeal Mm -hmm. and he is simple. He has no parts. He simply is he, all that he is, he is nothing is in God, but God, those are the classic phrases. Uh, If God is incorporeal and if God is all that he is simple, pure, perfect being, then he is also without passions because in order for, in order for something to be capable of change, in order for something to be capable of receiving the agency of another, you have to, you have to have parts that can be changed. Um, and if God is, is without those things, if he is pure, simple being, then he is also without passions. He is without the capacity of, of change. So it seems like the doctrine of divine simplicity is a major driving force in why we'd want to say he's impassable. Absolutely. Uh, simplicity, impassibility is a necessary consequence of divine simplicity. If you hold to divine simplicity, you must hold to divine impassibility. It is a necessary outworking uh, of that doctrine. That makes sense. So for, let's just, let's just back the truck up here for a second. So for listeners who have no idea what we're talking about right now, they don't know what, you know, simplicity is or impassibility or any of this stuff. Um, what we're talking about is the classical theism. Can you basically maybe not necessarily a resource or, I mean, it can be a resource, but, or just a brief explanation from yourself of, of where someone can go to look to understand what it is we're talking about when we're talking about classical theism. Well, if you're interested in divine impassibility, my, my primer is designed to be 
for everybody. It's really Sunday school lessons turned into a book. Um, if you if you look at God Without Passions, a reader, which I put together first, it seems very daunting because it, it's transcribed portions of old books that don't read very easily until you get used to them. But the advantage of the reader is that you get 50, maybe even 60 sources that really say the same thing throughout. And so you read one and you think, I'm not sure what I just read. <laughs> but by the time you get to 10 and the 20th and the 30th, it, it, the repetition is a teaching tool mm-hmm. to say, okay, now when I go back and read the first one, it, it makes a lot more sense. And so the, the primer and the reader function in different ways. The primer tries to just teach it to you in a, in a structured way. The reader gives you raw material again and again to teach through repetition. Uh, James Dolezal's book, All That Is In God, would be a helpful uh, book to understand classical theism. There have been a variety of new books that I've heard great things about, but I haven't read uh, myself, so I I can't give a personal recommendation to them. Uh, But it's uh, the reason that I bring that up is that my books are just one one slice of a body of literature that's been developing. And and so you should look for for other books uh, and other writers who are maybe concerned with a, a more specific part of, of classical theism than what my work has focused on. The, the reason I asked that then is because I, I could just feel like a, a lot of people are probably listening and they're thinking, oh, I don't have any clue what they're talking about. I'm just going to turn it off. So I was thinking maybe we could just get that out of the way now. And then if they sure. want to pause and maybe yeah. go read the books and come back and listen to this later. Um, but so um, I guess I want to ask like, what is at stake with this? doctrine of impassibility like what so um what's the payoff for uh, affirming it and then what do we what do we lose if we deny this doctrine it's it's really an all or nothing um classical theism is an all or nothing it's a huge domino and if you push it over all the other dominoes go with it um if you are if you are desirous to believe and confess uh, Orthodox, classical, Catholic, Protestant, Reformed theology, as it is developed into the confessions of faith of the 16th and 17th centuries, then classical theism is is home, and it is also is also a, 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 a without which not a sine qua non. It is it is a necessity mm-hmm. because. Class, Orthodox, Classical, Catholic, Protestant, Reformed theism is in the Second London Confession, the Savoy Declaration, the Westminster Confession, the Church of England, uh, 39 articles before that, uh, and so many other uh, Reformed confessions. And their doctrine of God in the Reformed confessions is not a deviation. It's not a departure from the, the medieval and, and Roman Catholic uh doctrine of God. And you can find it in in the fathers very clearly as well. So a lot's at stake. Orthodox Christianity uh, is at at stake in these kinds of discussions. Now, why? It's easy for me to to assert that, but I'm not arguing it. And here's some of the simple reasons why that is the case. And it, it really does come, in my opinion, come back to and come down to divine simplicity. Is God... Uh, pure act? Is he a pure, simple being, or is God composed of parts? And so divine simplicity is a denial of composition 
in God. There is no composition in God whatsoever. There are many different kinds of composition. God is devoid of all of them. There is no composition whatsoever in God. And because of that, he is unable to change or to be acted upon by others. And so simplicity is the foundation that, like I said earlier, necessarily requires the doctrines of immutability and impassibility. It also stands behind God's agency in the doctrine of the decree and providence uh, in terms of God as the first cause and all other things being second causes. There's one first cause, and that is, that is the case because only God can create and has the power to give us uh, stable agency in creation. If, if God is made of parts, then he is created by some greater force, and God cannot be a first cause. He must therefore be a second cause, because he is caused. Um, and so God's simplicity also undergirds his uh, prime causation. So chapter 2 and 3 of the Confession, and as well as the chapter on, on Providence, chapter 5, uh, those things are undergirded by divine simplicity, by classical theism. And those chapters run throughout, those, the theology of those chapters runs throughout the rest of the confessions, uh, all the other chapters. Uh, why, why should we believe in, in perseverance or in the security of our assurance? Why should we believe God's promises? Why should we be comforted by his covenant? Well, it's because I, the Lord, change not, you sons of Jacob. Uh, it's because I don't change that you are not consumed, God says in Malachi chapter 3. Or maybe I get the reference wrong, but it's in Malachi, excuse me. Uh, and, and so God's immutability, his impassibility, his simplicity, that undergirds our trust in his promises. It doesn't just hold up a theological system for the sake of holding up a theological system. Uh, we, we believe and trust in his promises and his word because of these things, because he is I am that I am, and there is no other. Uh, so... Everything's everything's at stake, uh, and it's not something to be tinkered with or or tampered with. Hmm. So, it seems like, at least for me, when I talk to a lot of people, impassibility is one of those that is difficult for people who aren't classical theists to accept and swallow. And I wonder if part of it is because of mischaracterizations of what it's actually saying. So. What are some mischaracterizations and why are they not true of what impassibility is actually saying? Well, one of them is the idea that passability, that divine passability, that God experiences passions. Some of, for some of them, they just read that off the page of scripture. You know, they say, well, it says God repented mm -hmm. or God was grieved in his heart. And so I uh, guess impassibility is out the window. You know, they're automatically suspicious of, of such things. And so one of the responses to that is to say, well, when you read about God's body in the scriptures, God's arm, or you read about God's um, eyes, or you read about when God is described in the, the language of the human body, you instinctively know, well, yes, that's affirming true things about God, but... I'm not going to reduce him to the analogy. I'm not going to reduce him to the language of human, uh, the human form. We need to do the same thing when God is described in the language of human emotion or human passions. Uh, the, the thing I was just mentioning about bodies is often called anthropomorphism. God 
described in the the shape of a man, anthropo, man, morphism, the shape. Uh, anthropopathism is God, sh God described in the language of human emotion or passions, anthropo, man, path, pathism. That's the pathy root again. And so we need to read those passages with the same kind of instinctive uh, creator-creature disconnect that we do when God is described in the language of human body parts and say, okay, this is affirming something true. This is not empty language when it says that God was grieved in his heart or God repented, but I'm not going to reduce God to the human language used to describe God. And so if, if their understanding of impassibility is that it flatly denies the plain teaching of scripture, then they've, they've misunderstood. Another thing is people, people say, well, this makes God cold. This makes God inert. This makes God um, something so different that I can't even understand or comprehend. Why would I even, why would I even pray to God if I can't change him? <laughs> um, that, that kind of thing. Not, and that's putting words in people's mouths, but they, they kind of think that way, you know, well, they say, well, then I just don't get it, you know. Uh, and, and so we need to – what the primer tries to do is to to help understand people – help people understand that when we deny passions to God, we then are free and able to affirm perfections in God. So let's think about love as a passion and think about love as an affection, in man, love is a passion. It is something that comes about. It is something that happens to me when something, when an agent acts upon me. Um, and so when you walk through a, a store or, or when you go to a buffet, you see all these different kinds of foods. Some of them provoke hunger and desire in you. Some of them the opposite, <laughs> repulsion. And so the, that passion, that undergoing, you're being acted upon by the double stuff Oreos that you see. <laughs> Those double stuff Oreos are changing you. Uh, and you are, it's the classic commercial, you're not you when you're hungry. You know, the Snickers tagline, that's, that's passability. You're not you mm -hmm. when you're hungry. If God is passable, we'd have to say, well, God's not God when he's hungry. But how does Elijah make fun of the prophets of Baal? He's like, oh, is Baal sleeping? Is Baal going to the bathroom? You know, like, is Baal too tired? What's the deal? Because he knows that the Lord's eye is always open. His ear is always hearing. He is unchanging and unchanged. Uh, and so, sorry, let's get back to love. Love is to do good to another. And so I am loving only insofar as something makes me want to do good to it. And then there are a lot of things that happen to me that make me not want to do good to people and sometimes I do mean things. I do bad things to people. And that's that's hate. And so my whether or not I'm loving depends on the people around me and the things around me. We're honest as husbands and wives. Do we always love our spouses? Well, if you define love as to do good to them, sometimes you do and sometimes you really don't, you know? And that's just human life. We have to mortify those things. We have to fight against it. But that's just human experience. We can't stop being that way. For God, God is not loving. Whoa, what? What does the scripture say? God is love. 
love is not a, a state of being that he enters into and can leave if you provoke him enough. God, love is what God is. It is a perfection in God. For me, love is a, a state of being. It's a passion. I'm in and out of it. Mm-hmm. But for God, God is love. And so I can always go to him. Always. And he's not going to be the annoyed father. He's not going to be the tired mother. He's not going to be the human being that we are with passions and say, not now, not you. He will say, you are my son and I love you. Our God is love. And so that begins to, it's not that gold is cold and that God is cold and inert and just, well, I guess we believe in him and he's, he's God, but I don't understand. It's, he is the Lord, our God, who, whose steadfast love endures forever. Is there any person in the Bible that receives that praise? Oh, give thanks to David because his steadfast love endures forever. Are you kidding me? Oh, give thanks to Paul for his steadfast love endures forever. No way. That's impossible. Paul says to the crowd that wants to deify him, we are men of like passions with you. We're just dudes. And so God alone is the one whom we praise and thank that his steadfast love endures forever. And it endures forever not because he keeps his passions under control, but because he is love. It is a perfection in God. It is his very being. So I want to think through God interacting uh, with creation um, in light of doctrines like immutability and impassibility. So um, particularly what I'm thinking about is our salvation. So how should we think about going from being under the wrath of God as lost people to being saved and uh, under his grace if there is no change in God, um, whether that be in passions or just change in general? So um, how, how do we understand our salvation in light of these doctrines? It's a great question, and it's another one that, that can sometimes bother people because they've come to a certain idea of their salvation, and and they take great stock in that. And so when you tell them it's not quite the way that they're thinking about it, it, it can be tough for them. But but it's actually what I'll say is, is better than what many people often think about their own salvation. So going back to the question, does God change from wrath to grace towards us? Uh, when we are saved, the answer is that we change. God changes us. He doesn't change. And here's how this works. Part of it comes down to definitions and how you define your terms. In fact, it really comes down to that. The same, God is just. He's perfectly just. And so when a, when a, a wicked sinner, yeah, I guess that's unnecessary. When a sinner, <laughs> <laughs> that's redundant. Uh, When a sinner approaches God's perfect justice, God's justice condemns that sinner. God's justice can do nothing else but condemn that sinner. It would be unjust for him to say, well, you're, you're not a sinner. They are. And we call that wrath. God's perfect justice condemns the sinner and will not relent, will not ever give up that sentence. You can't pay off God to treat you as not a sinner when in fact you actually are. He is perfectly just, and you can't change that. You are under wrath because his justice condemns you. But the beauty of the gospel is that through Christ's death, 
which takes away our sins and imputes Christ's righteousness to us, by faith in Christ, God has changed us. Now we are no longer guilty. We are righteous. And so that same perfection of justice in God, when a righteous object approaches God's justice, what does God's justice do? It approves of that person. And so for us, it's a change from wrath to grace. Absolutely. Because we have changed. My sins have been forgiven and Christ's righteousness has been attributed to me. I have been justified. God's same God remains the same, just, never letting the wicked off the hook. But rather, they must be changed. The wicked must become not wicked. The sinner must become not a sinner in terms of righteousness in order to draw near to God. And so our, my salvation depends not on God changing relative to me, but God changing me relative to himself. And so that's how we understand it's not that God was, we, we, it's hard to think of these things except as emotional states. God was wrathful towards me. And now God is kind and merciful towards me. God does not change. And if we, if we attributed some kind of intense wrath to God as just anger itself, we'd have to affirm that of him infinitely and eternally. And so now we have God being infinitely and eternally wrathful. That doesn't make sense because our conception of it is far too human, far too emotional, far too passionate. And God's anger is not this eternal and infinite fury. God's anger is his perfect, unrelenting justice applied to a wicked object. And you'd say, well, is it not scary anymore? No. You talk about an executioner that will, will execute. No question. It's not because he's mad at you. It's because he's just and you're sinful. There's no escaping that. It makes his justice unstoppable. It makes his justice inescapable. So you don't need loud wrath preaching to, to press to the conscience. You are in huge trouble. You will, God will never let you go. His justice will never let you get away. But he has made grace available freely in Jesus Christ, to all who come to him. He, he has provided the way, and he is just and perfect. And so if you come to him in Christ, there's no question. He will absolutely, absolutely justify you. He will forgive your sins and declare you righteous in Christ, which is why we can preach with confidence, as, as Paul uses this language, quoting the Old Testament, that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And they will not be cast out. They will not be put to shame. We can say that because God's perfect justice will justify everyone who comes to Christ by faith. You don't have to convince God to be nice. You don't have to convince God to have mercy upon you. He has made it freely available. Un, uh, just as unstoppable as his justice will condemn sinners, his grace will, will free sinners. It's Both of them are equally sure and certain as so long as I remain in my sins, I will be eternally punished. As so long as I come to faith by Christ, I will be eternally blessed. I will be saved. And divine impassibility, immutability, simplicity undergird the certainty of those, of those two things. God's perfect justice will condemn the wicked and will uh, liberate those who come to him by faith. Yeah, and I, I couldn't help but think as you were describing this, I wonder if 
the struggle um, for a lot of people when it comes to that type of question is because they're thinking, well, at one point there is wrath and another point in time there's grace and they are not uh, using the full classical picture of attributes such as timelessness to think, well, there isn't a point A and a point B in the life of God to where he needs to shift from having wrath to grace. So if we use uh, that uh, dogmatic concept uh, alongside these others, it helps to make sense of how this can work. Um, But I I had another question, uh, uh, another, I guess, thought when I'm thinking about impassibility. Um, It seems that in in the 21st century and in the 20th century, a lot of people have promoted the idea that empathy is something uh, that is prized. That is a chief virtue that we want to have. Uh, and when I think about what that means, I would think empathy is the idea that I'm emotionally being impacted by someone else and feeling for them in a certain way, I guess, agreeing with their emotional state, um, entering into it in some way. And if we say that that is a virtue, a lot of people want to say, well, why isn't that a virtue in God? And if we have this idea of impassibility, well, then God can't be empathetic. And then they go on down the road of, I will, I want to deny divine impassibility because I want empathy to be something that God would want to have. So I guess my question is, number one, should we think that God is empathetic in any way? Um, And I guess that's the key question, really. (laughs) Okay. Well, the first thing is that, no, God is not empathetic. Um, God does not enter into our suffering or our states of being. Christ in the incarnation and in his human nature nature is a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. And so Christ knows our emotional state. He, he remains a man. But in terms of deity, in terms of God, no, God does not have empathy. And this is... Uh, I really love discussions, uh, scholastic discussions of mercy in God on this topic because they they talk about how depending on how you define mercy, God can or cannot have it. Which, if God cannot have mercy, that would the scriptures just wouldn't make any sense because He's everywhere declared to be merciful. Um, and so they say the problem is not with scripture or anything. The problem is the definition of mercy. And so they say, if you define mercy as a misery of the heart, which I think in Latin, misericordium, if you speak Spanish, misericordia, a misery of the heart, misericordium, you know, cardiac arrest, you you see those two roots, misery and and cord, the misery of the heart. If mercy is, I feel a heart misery for you, and therefore I help you, that's mercy in a human being. That's a passion. And so I'm only going to be merciful insofar as something makes me feel. And if that's the only definition you have, then no, God cannot be merciful because he doesn't feel our suffering. But then the writers go on to say, but it is better that mercy in God is a perfection and does not depend on entering into our suffering. So they say the true definition of mercy is to help the helpless. Mercy is helping the helpless. And God, because he does not depend upon entering into our emotional states before he will help us, is free and able to help anyone and everyone. God is therefore the most merciful because you don't, again, you don't have to move him to mercy. You don't have to move him to help. You just say, I'm helpless. 
he he's just the one who helps the helpless. Whereas for me, you know, you play a a commercial of you know a starving dog and sad music, and I'm like, okay, I'll give you money, you know. <laughs> but you you go by a human being on the street and you refuse to give them money. Now things are more complicated than that, but the point is. Things tug on my heart in different ways because I'm a passable human being. And so mercy is helping the helpless. God helps the helpless from his freedom, and so he's the most merciful. We help people insofar as we enter into their suffering. Now, is it wrong that we have mercy that way? No, that that's to be human. But we ought to be merciful to everyone, yeah. Not just those people that it's convenient to be merciful to or that move us to mercy. And the parable of the Good Samaritan, of course, is Jesus teaching us this. You know, who is your neighbor? Uh, and so empathy is not empathy is not wrong uh, to to be moved by other creatures. Like if you can stop being moved by other creatures, you're God. You're you are therefore impassable. You you can't stop being being passable. If I blow on your eye, you will blink. If I yawn, other people will yawn. You can't stop that. To cease to be passable is to cease to be human. So it's not a question of whether we should empathize with people. It's just that we have to order and control our passions to be rightly ordered to, to what is truly good and opposed to that which is truly evil. So if they are, if what they're experiencing, if their emotion is a, is a sinful emotion, then, then yeah, you, you may acknowledge it, but you need to oppose it. But if their emotion is for right reasons and unto right ends, then, you know, weep with those who weep. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure if, if that really intersects with the discussion uh, discussions of empathy that you've seen. I haven't personally read them. Uh, but the, taking it to the classical definitions of mercy, I think, is helpful. Yeah, so I, I, th- I think it is. I think that it exactly answers what I was asking. So now I want to ask, what are the pastoral benefits of this doctrine for for the local church? Well, in a way, we've already gone over this. For for one reason, the preaching of the gospel is heavily impacted by it. Uh, How do we preach the, the condemnation of sinners to the lost? It's not just the big guy's really angry at you. It's the perfect creator and judge of the universe knows your sins and will eternally punish you for them. And then the gospel, that same God has made salvation available freely in Jesus Christ. So the the surety of the, the certainty of condemnation and the certainty of salvation absolutely should be undergirded by divine impassibility in our preaching. You don't have to use those terms, but... And then, of course, the we already talked about how God comforts his people. I, the Lord, change not, therefore you are not consumed. Or in, in Lamentations, um, the, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. I mean, Brandon, Jordan, are your mercies new every morning? <laughs> you know, like, no way. Not till you get your coffee and your breakfast, you know. <laughs> Uh, God's mercies are new every morning, so we can comfort the believer and exhort them to trust in God's promises because of the unchangeable and perfect God who has made those promises. And it, it makes his promises sweet. Uh, it makes them sure and certain. Uh, and it, it makes us, it, it shows that God is the ultimate good. 
and passions are to be directed toward the good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the more the people, our people and ourselves see God as the ultimate good, the infinite good, the more our affections, our passions, our love, our joy, our hope will be drawn towards God himself. Uh, and, and so the, in all these ways, the doctrine of divine immutability and impassibility is, is a, a really wonderful foundation for our faith and a comfort for us at all times, at all times. Well, that's, that's awesome and very helpful. Um, Brandon, do you have anything else you wanted to ask? I don't. All right. Um, and I know we've already gone over some good resources, so I I won't belabor that point anymore, but, uh, Sam, we're very thankful that you took the time to talk with us uh, about this topic as well. Um, I think it's one that is, uh, growing an interest at least um among the circles that i see uh and is one that has been i guess rigorously almost tried to be attacked over the last i don't know 50 to 100 years anyway or more so this was great um and we encourage our listeners to check out the resources that we mentioned uh let us know your thoughts give us your feedback comments questions um, uh, other positive interactions or negative interactions if you don't like it that's fine too uh, so <laughs> um, anyway uh, thanks uh, for listening to the episode and if you have been listening you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist confessional podcast that's out there 